welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Brian Fabian Crane, the co-founder of Chorus One, the POS validator, and fellow podcaster over at Epicenter Podcast. We chat about the early days of crypto in Berlin, the role that Epicenter played in his life and his thinking around the space. He shares the origin story of Cosmos and the validator ecosystem, as well as some backstory into Chorus One. The ZK Validator is now working with Chorus One on two of the networks we validate on, Cosmos and Osmosis. Cosmos was only announced after the recording, so we didn't actually mention it in the show, but I thought I'd mention it now. Now, a few notes before we start in. Next week, I will be taking the week off from the podcast, so there will be no episode. But in the meantime, keep an eye on zeroknowledge.fm, the website, because we will soon be launching an updated version. I'm hoping to do that during the break. And there'll be all sorts of cool stuff to explore there. And while you're at it, you may want to check out the latest jobs board. After the last CK Jobs Fair, there's a whole new batch of jobs there. So if you're thinking to jump into the space, be sure to check it out. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, EY Blockchain. Smart contracts with robust privacy technologies are the future of both business and finance. At EY, they are investing in tools like their smart contract review services to assess consistency with standards and best practices. Users can run predefined automated tests and simulate smart contract execution by configuring selected functions through their user interface. To find out more about their technology and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, EY Blockchain. Now here is my interview with Brian. So today I'm here with Brian Fabian Crane the co-founder and co-host of Epicenter, and the co-founder of Chorus One. Welcome to the show, Brian. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Anna. I've been a big fan of your podcast, so it's a great honor to be here. (laughs) Well, I've been a big fan of your podcast as well. And actually, that's where I want to start this conversation. One of the reasons I also wanted to have you on here was the Epicenter podcast for me was very important, very formative when I was first getting into the space, like this is what I was listening to. And I don't know if you remember the first time that we met, I fangirled. I heard your voice, like you were sitting ahead of me on a bus or something like in Mexico at DevCon 3, I think. And I was like, I know that voice. And I went up and I was like, you're Brian from the podcast. I don't know if you remember this at all. Yeah, I, I do remember. It was this Polychain party uh, yes. in like 2017, right? That totally. DevCon in Cancun, um, which was, uh, yeah, sort of during the last bubble. But yeah. During that crazy time. Kicking off this interview, I want to find out a little bit about where you started, Brian. What was the starting point for you in this entire ecosystem? Yeah, as a child, I became, or as a teenager, I became quite interested in like economics and I was reading, you know, like Milton Friedman and and some of these libertarian uh, ideas. And this was very appealing to me. And then I went to the US and I studied economics in college. And then I was kind of lost because I was like, I don't know what to do. And for, for a little bit, I tried to, you know, I did like an internship as an investment bank. And I was like, okay, this is not it. And then mm. 
I was also interested in, you know, startups and so dabbled a bit there, but there was also, you know, I was just working on things that I fundamentally just like did not care about. And then I discovered like Bitcoin. So this was like in 2013 and that was just for me, like immediately, it just felt like everything came together where, you know, there was this audacious, enormous vision of like creating mm -hmm. this new different world and they also felt like there was just, you know, an enormous uh, sea of possibilities of things that have to be done and things that could be explored. And so, yeah, pretty much immediately, like, fell down this, uh, you know, rabbit hole. And at the time I was finishing a master's thesis, so I was sort of, you know, working on that. But then I had moved to Berlin and whenever I was, like, cycling around, I was listening to Let's Talk Bitcoin. And Let's Talk Bitcoin had started like two months before, but they were pretty good. You know, they were putting out like two episodes a week. So I was listening to like all of them and I was already quite sold on, you know, I did not know where to start. I didn't feel I had any kind of, you know, useful skills at the time. There was very little money at the time in the space, you know, like in, mm -hmm. in Europe, maybe there were like five companies that had raised any kind of financing. And, you know, wow. if, if someone raised like half a million, this was like, uh, you know, back then there was like the Mastercoin token sale and they raised, raised like maybe less than a million, but that seemed like a lot. It seemed like Massive. very much of a success. So, mm. uh, so I didn't really know like where to go and what to do, but I did very much feel like the podcasting is just a super powerful tool. And, you know, I felt with podcasting, okay, I could like learn about the space. I could speak with people about it. I could, you know, produce something that's like useful to others, get to know people, build sort of network. And uh, so then, yeah, then I basically started this podcast together with Sebastien Couture, like at the end of 2013. I also started like the Bitcoin meetup Berlin mm -hmm. at the time. So Berlin had... Had kind of an early Bitcoin scene, you know, there was like Room 77, where which was like the first place where you could pay, I think like, you know, go to a bar and pay with Bitcoin. They started buy a in burger. 2011. Yeah. yeah, buy a burger. And so there was a bit there, there was, you know, some very early adopters, but there was no meetup at the time that had like presentations and content. So I also started that and, you know, ran that for kind of like many years. But mm. uh, yeah, the podcast was, I think, was... What helped me the most in you know, getting to know the industry, and totally. now I think we're like basically still running, right? So now it's it's like four hundred episodes and two thousand thirteen, so that's seven and a half years now. Okay. Yeah. So it's wild. It's so interesting, Brian, what you're saying about entering into the space at the time where, like, if you're not a technologist, if you're not a dev yourself. I mean, I experienced something very similar when I joined. Like I had worked in startups, but the role that I had taken in the startup that I had done before, I couldn't quite replicate in when you're talking about like protocol level development. It was sort of so far from the customer facing side of things that I, you know, for a long time was also kind of like, where can I contribute something to this space? And it sounds like, I mean, you were there even earlier. What kind of roles were there even? Like, were there product roles or was it really, really just the deep tech devs, researchers at the time? 
I mean, the thing that I felt I could do was like, okay, I can organize a meetup. And then, you know, in the beginning, I gave a lot of talks myself too. You know, there was like the Ethereum white paper came out and I was like, okay, I'm going to do a talk about the Ethereum white paper and like explain some of the ideas in there or like, so I did quite a lot of talks in the beginning, but there was pretty much immediately, there were like, you know, 30, 40 people who came to the meetups regularly. And, and it was like very informal and just different people doing different talks. So you no, know, that's the thing I felt I could do. And then there was the podcast, which again, you know, was accessible, right? Like you just have to show totally. up and ask decent questions. And then I think you can like do something useful. You know, we did do some attempts at creating some kind of, you know, co-working space, but that didn't really work out at the time. But yeah, that was kind of what I felt I could do. Mm-hmm. At a later point, there was, you know, Gavin came to Berlin. So Gavin Wood was working on Ethereum and I think they came to Berlin in like the summer of 2014. And, you know, I organized the meetup for like sort of the first meetup where they would like present Ethereum at the time mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, sort of try to help a little bit them to, you know, sort of set foot in Germany. I, I did help also if there was a German company where like all these developers were hired you know that was kind of a service provider to the ethereum foundation so like i helped set that up and i sort of tried to see if i could like uh you know help in ethereum which i could a little bit yeah that meetup by the way that meetup is so famous like i was not there i know at least six people who were at that event and who will still to this day cite it as like that was one of their first maybe blockchain events. That's where they met like very key people that like influenced their lives. <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's a really interesting one. <laughs> totally. I think in the beginning, these meetups were really awesome. And, mm. you know, at some point I stopped doing them because it felt like they didn't have the same effect anymore. Also, it was just the reach of a meetup is so much smaller than like of a podcast. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think in the beginning it was great. And yeah, so I helped a little bit with Ethereum and then I joined uh, this project called um, Ares Industries at the time. So that was kind of my first more proper job. And uh, Is that they, a blockchain project or is yeah, that something so else? So they renamed later to Monax. But okay. I mean, I think Ares Industries Monax was like also an interesting company with interesting ideas. Two of the founders were lawyers and one was a lawyer coder. And they started working on Ethereum like before the Ethereum launch. You know, and basically we're like, okay, how can we make, um, you know, a sort of Ethereum version that's more like in sync with legal contracts and legal structures. And basically they wrote their own version of the EVM. Actually, you know, one of the first engineers at that company is Ethan Buckman. So I I worked with (gasps) Ethan back there. Like he was like the, I think maybe the first engineering hire. And I was like, you know, joined soon after. He was very involved in Cosmos after this. Yeah, well, so the story of Eris uh, is very much linked to the story of Cosmos. Interesting. Because they, you know, Eris was um, looking to build basically on Ethereum, but they wanted to have in a different kind of chain, fulfilling a bit of a different need. And, you know, they, they changed the EVM with different permissioning. But the other thing is they wanted to replace proof of work. And mm. then they were like, okay, how are we going to do that? And then they found uh, Tendermint. Wow. And Tendermint at the time was like J and the white paper and a bit of code. Like a research project still. Yeah, yeah, totally. But Ares had raised VC 
venture funding. So they had a bunch of money and, you know, there was like maybe seven people, whereas Jay was just Jay, you know, there was, there was nobody else, mm-hmm. I think, working on Tenement. And so Ares became the first user of Tenement. And, Interesting. And then Ethan was sort of spending a lot of his time uh, you know, getting paid by errors, but trying to like fix Tendermint and get it into some sort of like usable state. You know, and then that didn't really go anywhere. I think the entire enterprise blockchain thesis, I would say, uh, ended up being false. Hmm. Like my my thinking around it was that I felt that the user experience would be like really hard and that it was just so far away to make like end user applications that would be compelling that I felt or in useful. enterprise, maybe you could first get like some adoption and later would become. But I think the thing that you didn't realize at the time was ICOs and just the economics around tokens that allow you to bootstrap things so fast and to generate so much momentum like before there's real usage. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, you have all of these enterprise use cases where it's basically before you launch the chain, you have to have these different parties come to some agreement about, you know, what are the rules of this chains? How does it work? And you have this sort of weird situation where, you know, generally there would be a particular industry and there's something about this industry that you want to do different, that's very inefficient and you want to like use a blockchain to make it much more efficient. But then you have these competitors that somehow need to come together to collaborate, but they're also competing. And I don't think any of this stuff really went anywhere because they're it's just way too slow and complex and political. Yeah. And then you have the, the sort of political issues in one organization multiply with the other organization. Totally. It's interesting. I've heard like companies try to use the blockchain element to just try to digitize a business. Like this is back in 2017 where they would use like, we have a blockchain, which everyone was really hype about. So it would kind of get the attention of the higher ups. But really all they were trying to do was change the organization at all and try to bring in like a digital thing. And that just tells you about like where these orgs are at. Like they are not ready to truly embrace something as experimental as a blockchain. They maybe would chase the dream for a proof of concept, but like they're not even digital businesses yet on so many other levels. Right. And Monax had traction with like, you know, there was quite a lot of proof of concept. There was some partnership with, you know, PwC and Deloitte and, you know, UPS and Deutsche Bank and Swiss Re. And they're like many of these like huge corporates did build like POCs on it. And some of it was maybe even cool. But, you know, I've been reading in the last days, there's this great article about Tesla uh, on this like wait but why I don't know if you know that website yeah yeah I know right? that blog and it's interesting to read this where really it was sort of predictable like a long time ago that you know electric cars will be like superior and they will take over but all of these car companies they were just so stuck in you know this mindset of we have this uh, normal gas car and we have to focus on making it like you know two percent better for next year and i think the ability to sort of disrupt yourself like that's really hard to do and then in this enterprise blockchain world you generally would want that 
all of these companies somehow together like disrupt themselves and it just doesn't really seem to work. But in that Tesla example, like what happened instead was like a competitor came along that just leapfrogged so far ahead that like all of those companies have stepped up since then and have totally changed their internal paradigms. But I think what you're saying, it's like you couldn't just count on those orgs getting together and making those changes as a coalition. You needed that like star that like surpassed them that they could aim for almost. Yeah. And I think there is something just fundamentally better about public blockchains where, you know, you have this permissionless innovation and, you know, people can build something and then you can say, okay, I want to like join in on this versus, you know, you up front getting together and like making this grand plan of how the system's going to work. So, yeah, I mean, I think in the end, to me, it feels like public blockchains are just fundamentally superior to private blockchains and these permission blockchains. And the pace of innovation has just been probably like 100 times as high in this yeah. world. So, you know, I guess we'll see what comes out of all that. I have not followed it too much in the last years, but I'm not so... You're not bullish on that. Not too <laughs> bullish. <sounds> like... <laughs> I want to go back to what you were saying about this sort of origin story of Cosmos, because you were really close to that. So you were kind of in the thick of it, it sounds like. You were there when Jay and Ethan were getting together. So right. Cool. So when I was like, when I joined Eris, then, you know, I knew, okay, they were building on Tendermint and I was running the Bitcoin meetup at the time. So I was like, okay, let me, let me give a talk at the meetup about Tendermint. Uh, so, you know, I gave this talk and I think we live streamed it and Jay was like watching it and it was like, oh, great talk, you know, cause he was like, oh, someone's giving a talk about Tendermint. This is cool. Um, <laughs> you know, actually at the time Tendermint was also trying to do some kind of enterprise blockchain use case. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Weird. So okay. So they were trying that. to raise like, you know, VC money and they were, targeting more corporates because they had a similar idea that it felt like, okay, this is where you're going to be able to get some traction first. Mm -hmm. It was not the thing for them. And then they yeah didn't really succeed with that. But then this Cosmos white paper came out like in the, I think summer of 16. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I felt Monax was not going anywhere. So I left that and I was like, okay, what do I do next? And, at the time, Ethan had already left Monax and had joined Jay to work on Tendermint. And so, you know, I was also exploring, okay, what do I do next? And of course, I knew, knew, knew about Cosmos and I thought this was like, you know, very cool idea and cool technology and also something where I could help because it was like four developers at the time and there yeah. was... You know, when I joined it, uh, there was not even like a weekly meeting. It was just like chatting on Slack. Yeah, just a group of people getting together. This is interesting. I mean, I want to revisit Cosmos, but this for me, it's the first time I actually heard about an origin story of Cosmos, first of all. And it's the first time I understand your connection to it. Because I've always sort of associated some like the work you do with that ecosystem, but I wasn't exactly sure as to why. <laughs> Um, but I want to come back to Cosmos because I want to jump more into Epicenter. While all of this was happening, while you were running these meetups, you had started this podcast. I'm really curious as a fellow podcaster, what were those early episodes like? 
Like, what was it like for you to do this? Were you doing it weekly right away? Were you just sort of doing it for fun? Yeah, where did you start? I mean, at first, you know, it was even like Sebastian and us and speaking about the news in the beginning. We didn't have guests in the first few episodes, but then pretty soon we started having guests and started doing, uh, you know, studying podcasts. I mean, we pretty much immediately were interested in, you know, kind of all things crypto, like beyond Bitcoin as well. Mm -hmm. We started the podcast in December 2013. And, you know, that was just at the same time the Ethereum white paper came out. So I think also like, you know, one of the first 10 episodes or something is about like Ethereum. Wow. And, you know, we did episodes on like counterparty at the time and, you know, colored coins and just like whatever there was. Was it hard to find guests back then? Like, was it hard to fill a podcast about these kinds of projects? No, no. Even at the time, there was enough going on that okay. you could have an episode every week. So no, it was not, uh, I think, I mean, at the time it was still, right? Like you could, there was a Bitcoin Reddit, which was the main home of the crypto community. And it was still a time when, you know, if there was a newspaper that mentioned Bitcoin, then, you know, someone would go and like take a picture of it and post it on Reddit and be like, hey, wow. look, someone mentions Bitcoin. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, yeah. So it was definitely very, you know, fringe still, you know, when I sort of wanted to buy Bitcoin at the time, there was no real exchange in Europe. So, you know, I was using like local Bitcoins, meeting up with people in person, like, mm. cash, these cash <laughs> transactions. So it was early, but, you know, there was already community and and it was already growing fast mm. at least it felt like that to me and then of course i joined the bitcoin community and i remember uh there was in berlin there was this bitcoin exchange berlin which was organized by this guy aaron koenig and he wanted to have like a place where people would get together physically to trade bitcoin and like meet each other so it's a mix between like social thing and you know, I went there to, I think, the first one of these and bought some Bitcoins from the local Bitcoins founder. He was there. And, uh, wow. you know, this was, I remember it was like, Bitcoin was like at 70 euros or something like that. And this was after the crash, you know, in early 2013, there was a crash and then mm -hmm. it started rising. And so I kind of got into it after that crash. What had been the peak at that point? What was right before then? I think it was like $230 or something. Okay, and then to it, 70. It crashed, so. yeah, to something like that. And then, you know, I got into it and, and it started rising very quickly. And it was interesting because I had this perception pretty quickly that, you know, people are going to basically look at this and they're going to say, well, there's some probability that, you know, the world is going to, adopt this and understand this. And if that happens, obviously the value of Bitcoin could be enormous, right? Much, much bigger. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at this and you say, okay, there's like a non-zero probability, even a 1% probability. I mean, I thought it was much higher, but like, let's say somebody felt even that, like even then it would make sense to say, I'm going to put some money in that. So I yeah. felt it was this self-fulfilling prophecy that would basically like get to a mass adoption so quickly. And then we had, of course, the 2013 bull market that brought a lot of people into the space. And, you know, I felt that, okay, we were like on track to like mass adoption very quickly. And yeah, that didn't turn out to be that way. <laughs> it was still a few years off, I guess. I don't even know if we're there yet. Yeah. Um, that's crazy, though. 
wild times. I wonder, like, given where you were positioned and the fact that you were interviewing all these people and you had seen sort of the early Ethereum stuff, I entered the space so much later and I entered in Berlin, which is very Ethereum focused in general. So a lot of my understanding of the space starts at Ethereum and then goes out from that. But you were there before Ethereum, then after, like, I've always recognized a bit of a schism between those two ecosystems. Like, how have you navigated that? Like, you were also very Bitcoin. Were you skeptical of Ethereum at the beginning or were you like, I'm into it? You know, I was like, unsure if it would work, but like, it was always clear to me that this is like a very cool idea that has potential. And I never had this, uh, I would say, more tribal tendencies. And Epicenter used to be called Epicenter Bitcoin. Yeah. And the meetup I started was the Bitcoin Startups Berlin meetup. And at a later point, renamed it to the Blockchain Meetup Berlin. And there was definitely some people who were like, uh, <laughs> who were like <laughs> absolutely not happy about this. Mm. Um, I would say we were fairly involved in the whole block size debate as well. Where did you land on that debate? What did you want? I mean, I was very much in favor of increasing the block size. Like uh, the arguments against it just did not make any sense to me. And I felt they were like intellectually incoherent. And mm. I remember we did a podcast with Mike Hearn. He was a Google engineer and he discovered Bitcoin maybe 2010. And he wrote the Bitcoin Java implementation. It was maybe the first other Bitcoin client and he was like communicating a lot with Satoshi as well. So he was like very, very early. And then we did a podcast with him and, you know, he was much like Bitcoin development has ground to a halt. And, you know, he was basically sort of making a lot of very negative predictions about what would happen when the blocks get full and it was like, mm. it's imperative, we increase the block size now. And then I remember when we had that podcast, you know, that was then on Reddit, you had like a thousand comments and it was very... Whoa. Controversial, it sounds It like. was very controversial and especially it was, I guess there were a lot of these disagreements were there between mm. different Bitcoin developers. There was, you know, Mike Hearn and Gavin Andreessen were kind of the main ones that were in favor of increasing the block size. And then you had on the other side, you know, Greg Maxwell and some of the other, especially that would later kind of aggregate in Blockstream that were against it. But this was not so apparent that there was these divisions and, you know, it's kind of wow. came up and... You kind of stepped into it maybe by accident a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. So we did also, you know, we did some podcasts with Adam Back and Greg Maxwell too. And we, you know, sort of mm. had these. Uh, Amy Guncier was pretty involved in that debate too because he was very much on like, he was definitely on the increasing block side. I did become a bit disillusioned with Bitcoin then because I just didn't feel the arguments against increasing the block size were intellectually honest. Mm. You know, now in retrospect, I think maybe it was a good thing that it wasn't increased. I'm not sure. I think the only argument really against it having been increased or for like leaving it the same is that, you know, if it is this kind of immutable thing and you cannot affect the rules, 
and this barrier is super high, it also makes it much harder for, you know, governments, regulators, etc., to go in and demand a change. Demand a basically. change, exactly. So yeah. I don't know if the block size had been increased, maybe it would have sort of shown this path of like, okay, here's how you change some of the core rules. And so in retrospect, maybe it wasn't a bad thing, I don't know. But the arguments were around decentralization and those just didn't make sense. Mm. And I was hearing, you know, there was this debate last week that I watched where there was also Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey and stuff. And, you know, Musk was also like, basically bringing up the same thing again. It's like, this doesn't make any sense, right? Like, they, I mean, this was written in 2008. And if you think of like how much the internet speed have increased, like that the block size is still the same. I mean, there's no technical justification for that. But one of the things I wanted to actually ask you is like, what other episodes do you really stand out to you? Like, must be so hard because you have 400 episodes. I know maybe you're not on all of them, but like you have a lot to choose from. But yeah, is there any other like big highlight episodes where you were like, this was a thing? Yeah, I remember we did an episode with Juan about IPFS. Maybe that was like episode 100 or something like that. But that was pretty amazing one where I think, yeah, I mean, he's just such a incredibly eloquent visionary. So I, you know, we had some, we did a bunch of episodes with Vitalik that were great. I mean, I very much enjoyed the Bitcoin episodes, you know, with like Mike Kern, Gavin Andreessen. Yeah, another one that I guess I remember was we did an episode with Emin Gunsir and Flat Zamfir about the DAO, you know, because they published this paper of like, oh, these are some of the issues with the DAO. And then we did this episode with them. Oh, yeah, the DAO. Yeah. yeah so we did this episode with them and we're talking about it and talking about, okay, you know, like also these curators and like, oh, isn't, you know, centralization and control there. And then, and then they had like the hack happen like a few weeks afterwards. And then afterwards, you had the SEC report and they were like quoting our podcast as like evidence Whoa. against that the DAO was a security. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Were you interviewing a lot of people during that time around this topic? Like all the different factions and different proposals? Were you following that? I mean, I'm not sure we were doing like that. I think we did a few episodes on it. I don't know how, don't remember exactly how closely we were, <laughs> but I definitely remember that one where we talked about, you know, some of these posts about like issues in the doll. Yeah. I think this is something that sort of inspired, you know, Frederick and I, when we started this was the idea of not making a podcast that just follows news. It's much more about exploring a topic. I feel like Epicenter is definitely in that camp. Like you guys seem to like explore your own curiosity a lot. Like you look for ideas that you're into, not necessarily like just reporting the latest thing. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. We, I think that was always our approach to it. Yeah. Cool. Where we last left off in your story is, is sort of the Cosmos world had just started. But I also want to for sure get to in this show, Chorus One and that project. So yeah, where were you at and what led you to actually start a validator on the side of having this podcast that was getting more and more successful? Yeah, so I mean, I was working uh, at Tendermint and I joined Tendermint where I think it was like four people. There was, you know, Ethan, Jay, Pong, and then me and Ethan Frey, I think joined at the same time. So, you know, it was a small team. 
I mean, I joined in like January and then in April or something like that, there was the fundraiser. And in that year, the team grew from, you know, ICF was established and the team grew from, you know, five people to 40 people. Wow. And Tenement was very much of a mess as an organization. And it was just very difficult to like work effectively in in that environment and you know i also helped with full note you know this kind of initiate that in berlin but then i you know i felt like a bunch of stuff i worked on had come to you know some reasonable closure and just wasn't that effective in this and then it again was clear to me that proof of stake is the future of how blockchains are secured i mean this is not, I would say, an original insight at all. I mean, Ethereum had already written in the white paper in 2013, right, about switching to proof of stake. And Tendermint mm-hmm. was also like around the same time in the white paper. And so it was clear to me that, uh, and, you know, Tezos was also working on it then. And, I, you know, I felt, okay, we're going to have all these proof of stake networks, but like and in, in the Cosmos right baby had this role of a validator but I'm like oh, who's going to be this validator there's no nobody is working on this and you know it just felt like somebody should should work on this and focus on that and so we started course one so it was actually in Mexico uh, that we in Cancun that we decided so Meher and I uh, there was actually after the Defcon there was kind of like a Cosmos like retreat, which was, you know, the core mm-hmm. team and a bunch of other people. And Meher was there as well as so my co-founder at course. And, um, you know, we decided, okay, let's, we'll start this company. And so then I left Tenement and we started uh, working on this validator at the time. It was like, how do you run a proof of stake validator? We had no idea. And we were also not, you know, we did not have any knowledge about, you know, infrastructure and neither of us is really software developer. So it ended up taking us basically over a year, you know, almost a year and a half to get to the point where you could like, okay, we can like run the Cosmos validator like reliably. <laughs> cool. What was the challenge? Was it finding people? Because I mean, also at that time, like Cosmos, it was still on testnet, I guess, during that period. Yeah, yeah. So the testnet, there were testnets and there were several challenges. Definitely finding, building a team was not easy. So I think we also made some hires that didn't work out. And then Mm -hmm. so we lost a lot of time that way. And the other thing was also we did not really know where to focus. So the first engineer we hired had this idea that, okay, you have to have like automated failovers because we were like uptimes are very important. So we have to have, you know, multiple validators running in different data centers. And then if one goes down, the other one automatically takes over. So we're like, okay, that's, that's what people are going to expect. And so we've got to build that. Now that's not easy to build. And so we yeah. spend a lot of effort in that. We spend a lot of effort in, you know, developing some tool for like, key generation and key transmission, you know, that you can like split them back up. And that thing, I think was probably like a good investment and right thing to do. But for example, the automated failover was definitely the wrong thing to do in retrospect. Mm. And it was, you know, it was a bad reward for how much effort it was. Just didn't didn't make any sense. This is before these networks had launched. Maybe Tezos or one of the early ones may have been there, but like, how were you funding this at the time? 
actually. Yeah, no, there was not anything yet. I mean, Tesla's had not launched, so there was no proof okay. of stake network that was live at the time. I mean, Meher and I, you know, we have both made some money from like Ethereum and Bitcoin. And so we we put in some money and then, you know, it was a small thing. Like we didn't pay ourselves and, you know, it was like five people. And so we had like, you know, three people to pay in the first year. And, mm. uh, but yeah, we were basically, you know, funding it. We did also try to raise venture capital money in like 2018. Uh, and that didn't like work out. And then we kind of switched a little bit where we also started thinking like, okay, let's focus more on like earning revenues instead of trying to, you know, concoct some story that like would appeal to VCs. Mm. And that was also, I think, a big turning point for us because uh, it just allowed us to focus much more on, you know, actually building the company and improving things. Uh, whereas before, like so much of my energy went into this fundraising thing and I was pretty bad at it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> having had a startup and having had the investor pitch experience myself, um, it is a time suck that you can't even imagine. And yeah. I completely can imagine that the minute you decided to drop it, your focus returned and you were able to actually like build so much faster. Yeah, no, it made a very big difference. And then... Yeah, and then, I mean, Cosmos, a big concern at the time was, you know, exchanges and custodians are totally going to dominate this validator game. And also there was this idea that it would be this commodity business and the mm. competition is fully going to be on price and commissions are going to go to zero. And then there's not going to be a business there. And I think that was a big question mark also internally. You know, we had a lot of discussions about that. We're always like wondering, is this true? Is it not? investors it was very much that perspective like yeah. they just did not see sort of the you know traditional network effects and you know flywheel that you know you have maybe more traditional startup, startup ideas. companies yeah but this is crazy i'm just trying to picture like you're building out this company and testing out like validation strategies before there was a live network and there's all these ideas it sounds like these like conversations happening around what would happen, what could happen, like trying to almost game theorize like what will happen down the line. And you're trying to build a company like running <laughs> while like these sort of pegs are probably changing. Where did you land with Chorus One? Like what strategy did you end up deciding basically upon launch of these networks? So, you know, one thing was we were running these validators and then, you know, Cosmos launched and then, uh, you know, some... Uh, I guess Loom was the first network we launched on and then Cosmos and then there came some others and, you know, this wasn't making like much money. So we were also wondering, okay, is there really a business there? Mm. So then the other thing we did was we started saying, okay, let's do more work where we are getting kind of paid for like contributing to protocols. And we had worked on this failover uh, solution for Cosmos and then we were like, maybe we can like do something like that for like another network. Mm. You know, we had met the Solana team. They were just starting out and they were very helpful in giving us like intros to all kinds of VCs, even though I hadn't even met them at the time. And mm. so, you know, when we went to San Francisco, we'd like work from their offices and Meher and I spent quite a bit of time with, uh, with them. And then we we're like, okay, we can do something like that for Solana. 
And so we started also working on Solana and, you know, we had some grant from them and we were working on, again, in retrospect, it was like a terrible project to choose, but it meant we were like very early on, like engaged in Solana and like also contributing to, you know, like finding issues and, uh, building tools, it sounds like. I mean, that's that's sort of, you started to become more than just an entity that runs infrastructure into maybe an entity that's like building infrastructure. Yeah. If not, you're, maybe you're not deciding on the spec of the client or whatever, but you're actually building the tools. Yeah, so we were doing that. And then, you know, we were also exploring different ideas. We had a bunch of like, uh, a bunch of different business ideas especially Meher has like is very creative he has like you know had some very like visionary ideas that you know we'd spend a lot of time exploring you know like should we do this should we not do this in the end often the decision came down to well you know we can't kind of keep running the validators and do this other thing because we're like we're just too small to handle that mm -hmm. and then we're like well we don't want to quite like abandon the validator work and so we ended up kind of like not pursuing most of these ideas. Yeah. But interoperability, I would say, is one area where that kind of came up over time where we felt like, okay, this was just uh, going to be important and it's something we wanted to work on. Partially it was because some of these ideas for protocols that we explored, uh, they relied on there being interoperability and something like IBC existing. And at the time, this was like, seemed quite far away. So we were like, yeah. maybe we should try to like accelerate that these bridges and interoperability exist. So that then later, like we could do some of these other ideas. Yeah, we started working on, on interoperability. We had like also a bunch of different projects there. We did some work on like uh, substrate to Cosmos, IBC rich, and then, uh, sort of like upgradability of IBC. We are working on a Cosmos Acelo bridge. Now we've also done some work around interoperability uh, around Solana. How big is Course One today? So now we're 20 people. It sounds like such an organic growth too. It's like you started maybe very much from this validating space, but getting these contracts along the way, you were able to build up this project. How many devs do you have? Yeah, I think mean, maybe around 15. Say cool. Like that. Probably around half is more like infrastructure and validators, and then the other is you know working on some of these protocols. You know, I guess one more thing we've also been quite involved in is you know liquid staking. So mm -hmm. we we also like understood that that would be a superior product in in many ways. But we were quite Cosmos focused. So we were looking at it a lot through the lens of like, how could this exist on Cosmos? Mm -hmm. And we received a grant from the ICF at the time. And then we wrote this research report. So there's you know, like 80, 100 page document that I think especially Felix did a huge amount of work on. But also on, on one of the Cosmos hackathons, we actually built a liquid staking, you know, liquid staking for Cosmos. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we built like, probably the first, you know, first version of a liquid staking protocol. So we did that at the time. Now Cosmos, there was a bunch of challenges and like making this happen for Cosmos. But then later there was the, especially around the P2P team, uh, started working on Lido, uh, which is basically this, it's the same idea, but for Ethereum. And, uh, you know, then we became quite involved in Lido 
and uh, you know contributed to that. We're one of the initial validators, and have now also been building a sort of lighter for Solana. Oh, interesting. So this is also uh, one of the things that you know we have like a team working on. What exactly is liquid staking? Yeah, so basically, when you're staking, then what happens is that your token gets put into some kind of escrow. At least it's true for most proof of stake protocols, because the protocol needs to have like access to these tokens to be able to slash them. And because it says like, okay, you know, it has to be locked up also so that you're kind of like liable for your actions. But, you know, there are some serious downsides to this for users. I think the two biggest downsides are that if you now want to sell this staking assets, you have to first unstake it or unbond it mm-hmm. and you have to wait and then you can sell it. So in Cosmos, this is like three weeks. Other networks vary, you know, some of them are a month, some of them are shorter, some of them maybe two and a half days. Uh, in the but Ethereum, Ethereum case, it's, it's like it's forever like, for now. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's one thing. And then the other big one is, you know, that if you're staking your tokens, like, you can't use your tokens also for other things at the same time. And, uh, you know, in particular, a simple example is Maker. You can put ETH into Maker and then you can get a DAI loan out. But if you're putting ETH into Maker, then you're not earning the staking rewards. And, you know, let's say there's now 5% or something that you could be earning. And in essence, this is kind of like, you know, an interest you are foregoing Mm -hmm. by doing that. So it would be really nice if you were able to put, you know, ETH into Maker, but also stake it at the same time so that you can earning your staking rewards on the collateral. And, you know, that's pretty huge. I think it's like a very big economic effect. And so the idea of liquid staking is basically that you you still have the original staking token being put into this escrow, but then you have another token that gets issued that basically represents a claim on that token. And now that other token, of course, I can transfer to somebody else. So I could use it as some sort of collateral for other things mm-hmm. uh, without really affecting the underlying protocol. Uh, and then, you know, you're basically addressing both of those issues so that you, you're allowing people to circumvent the unbonding period. They can sell immediately. And you also allow people to reuse their staking assets in you know, DeFi and in other applications. I actually remember when I first heard about it, it was like ZCon 1 and somebody had the idea also for Atoms, the idea that you could use some claim on it. But yeah, I'm curious when you first heard about that Yeah, or who you heard it from. I mean, I think this is something that like came up for us in the process of also like trying to fundraise, right? Because a big concern that investors had was that exchanges would be too powerful uh, in this and they would have this sort of insurmountable advantage because they can already do this to some extent, you know, because an exchange could say, okay, you know, we're like collectively staking all the atoms, but, you know, if you want to go from atom to like something else and like someone else, like you don't necessarily have to go through an on-chain unbonding transaction, but an exchange can on their database change ownership immediately. And then of course you also have uh, the factor that an exchange can say, okay, you know, like you can be on the exchange and you can like stake your tokens through the exchange, but I mean, why not allowing people to use that to fulfill some sort of margin requirement or, you know, to use it in another way. So it was, you know, it was very obvious that an exchange could kind of uh, circumvent these issues quite easily. You know, it was like obvious 
to ask the question, okay, how could you do this uh, on chain and basically through tokenizing the staked mm. assets? You sort of mentioned you're doing Ethereum with Lido and some sort of Lido for Solana, but do you imagine this existing for all of the chains eventually? Yeah, I, I think so. There are like different, uh, often technical challenges in making it happen. You know, like for example, on Cosmos today, there's no smart contracts on the chain. So how do you do it? Maybe you could do it without, with IBC. I mean, this is happening. You know, people are also developing liquid staking for Cosmos. So like, you know, you could use IBC or maybe Cosm Wasm, or, but like, you know, it's not necessarily easy. We are also seeing that now with uh, building this for Solana. Mm. It's just, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of complexity. But in the end, the advantages are just very large. Mm. So I think you will see this for pretty much all the chains. And it's an interesting question, actually, to what extent individual validators will even survive, right? Or if, if it's all going to be in, in some kind of liquid staking solutions, I think that's like very possible. The validation world is fast moving. I, you know, also want to mention on the show, since I have you here, um, we just, I think a month ago, when this is aired, we launched our first kind of partnership with you guys. So the Zero Knowledge Validator is now working with Chorus One on some of the networks that we're working on. And the first one was Osmosis. And I'm glad that I'm having you on with that live yeah. that I can like share that. I just mentioned Osmosis. And I kind of want to revisit like, since you've seen Cosmos through this entire time, like where do you feel Cosmos is at today? It still seems like it's a bit of a center, like you guys are still very active on the zones and chains that are built on the zones. But yeah, what does Cosmos look like to you from where you're sitting today? And maybe we should also work in the fact that you're also like involved in the ICF and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically the interchain is a foundation, uh, you know, like like the Ethereum foundation for Ethereum is the interchain foundation for the like kind of Cosmos ecosystem. And uh, I ended up joining the board of that about a year ago. Uh, so, and, uh, I've been on that and sort of, you know, like, uh, contributing to the Cosmos ecosystem through that. But yeah, if you look at Cosmos, I mean, you know, in Cosmos, you had a few core technologies, right? You had Tenement, you had Cosmos SDK, you had IBC, uh, maybe you can say it Cosmos Hub. And I, I mean, overall, it's pretty amazing like the amount of success that Cosmos has seen, right? Like Tendermint, uh, you know, when the test net still for Cosmos, there was, you know, like sometimes downtimes, but mm -hmm. it has worked extremely well. And it's also something where, you know, we, we run validators on uh, around 25 networks now, and maybe 10 of them are built on Tendermint and on the Cosmos SDK. And, you know, it's even something where, you know, if we are onboarding a new Cosmos SDK network, you know, like in some cases is like, uh, takes us like, a f you know, two hours to do it. Whereas like, you know, you can have some totally different network and yeah. it can be like, you know, months of work to like understand how this thing works. So I think Tendermint and Cosmos SDK have been like hugely successful in, in dramatically lowering the cost of like launching a new chain at really lowering the cost for validators to support it. Like it's just works like very well. And uh, I think there's also some other things that have 
not receive that much attention, but that are like working really well, which I think, for example, governance is in, if you see like a lot of these Ethereum DAOs and they may have some governance token, but you have like 1% or 2% of the token mm-hmm. supply is actually voting on things. So you could easily have some big whale Besides that just stuff. turns the vote in another way. And uh, so I think these governance systems don't really work very well, but the, the Cosmos governance system really has worked well. And, you know, because in Cosmos, for those who are not aware, right, basically what you have is that if you are staking and if you don't vote in the governance, your vote gets voted the same way as the validators. So there's kind of this expectation that has arisen that, okay, validators should pay attention to governance and participate. And of course, they're like running infrastructure and they often have like professional teams. So they kind of understand what's going on. And and so you have this very high participation in that, you know, often you have, uh, you know, 50% of the stake or more that's like voting on each governance vote. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you also have the feature that like, you know, as an individual, you can vote directly. And in the beginning, you know, I was also wondering, are people actually going to do that? But it's pretty cool now to see how much participation there is in Cosmos, right? Where you often have... Now, you know, close to 2,000, I think, uh, token holders who are, you know, like exercising those rights. You know, the idea of Cosmos SDK was that you have this modular framework for building blockchain. So you can write different components as these modules and then combine different modules to make a new blockchain, you know? So you have like a staking module and you can just take that or you can governance module and you can take that or like some other module. And I think that's, you know, it's working well and you have a whole variety of blockchains based on the Cosmos SDK, you know, from Cosmos Hub, Osmosis, Region, Terra, uh, and, and, you know, many others. And then I guess the final thing is IBC. We've been working quite a bit on IBC, but like, you know, we, we've hassled internally. It was often Will it like happen? questions on like, you know, is it going to yeah. work or is it too complex? You know, that was a big concern. But I feel like the Osmosis launch, and I think you mentioned you had a podcast on this, but Osmosis really, to me, I think the user experience that you see there with IBC so is cool. just really nice. And IBC is that glue that basically like creates the story. Like the Cosmos story always existed, but it was really these like independent planets or zones, as you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and it was really only until IBC launched that you could actually see Cosmos in its fullest form. It's been really cool to see that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the also maybe somewhat the special thing about uh, Cosmos was, you know, I think most, many blockchains, they, uh, you know, they focus a lot on like raising money and working with investors. And so there was a, a big focus on, okay, how is there going to be value captured by some token? And Jay and Bucky, but I think especially Jay had a, like just a huge aversion to any kind mm-hmm. of VC and investor. And he did not want to speak with any of them. And he was just not motivated by making money at all. And so I think that's also like kind of, you know, special about Cosmos where the Atom as a token doesn't even have any kind of like privileged role mm-hmm. in the Cosmos ecosystem. I wonder what your take is on Binance Chain. <laughs> also built on Tendermint. You're not validating on it. Yeah, I just wonder, like, you know, we're talking about that ecosystem. Would Binance ever use IBC? Like, could they click into all of this? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think they, hmm. I, I would guess they will use IBC. So actually, you know, you asked earlier about like, oh, podcast episodes. I think maybe the episode that has like influenced me the most was actually, we did an episode with, with CZ okay. in like 2018. And this is an episode I've maybe re-listened like three or four times. And like, I have a lot of respect for CZ and for, also for Binance to some extent. You know, I think they did, you know, it's of course a double-edged sword in many ways. And I think it's clear, you know, today Binance chain is like mm -hmm. not decentralized at all, right? You have like maybe five validators and they all seem to be run either by Binance or some sort of... Friend of Binance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, associates there. And I do think that Binance chain is probably going to struggle to be, you know, decentralized mm -hmm. enough to withstand regulatory pressure. So I'm not like too bullish on it, but I'm also Fair. not very informed about it. So it's very diplomatic of you. It sounds like you're giving a lot of um, like credit to how effectively they've navigated in this space. Like it is kind of amazing that they've been able to like maneuver and move and shift like what they are so often, so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, this is an, it's insane, right? I think Binance today, I was told this recently, is like yeah. 4,000 employees now, you know? And this was, uh, they started... 2017, in, maybe? What was it? Like three, That's when I first heard about them. Yeah, it was 2017. It was the summer of 2017. And, you know, it was also when we did the podcast with CZ. Now, I had worked on the Cosmos fundraiser and been involved in that. And, you know, in Cosmos, we had like from Cosmos white paper to fundraiser was maybe a bit less than a year, like nine months or something, right? And, uh, you know, there was a lot of work with lawyers and foundation and setting up and worrying about which kind of jurisdiction and how to do it. And there was just a lot of work that went into this. And uh, this was also typical of like what you saw in, in other projects, I felt like. And then when we were speaking with ZZ, it was just like, okay, he had basically you know, heard about ICO and was like, okay, I think we're going to do that like the same day. And then within two weeks, they had like their white paper published, fundraiser completed Whoa. and like, you know, raised 15 million. And then just, the, of course, they ignored Rules. like any kind of regulatory concerns and like, you know, they didn't, mm. I mean, they were very risk-taking. But uh, just the speed at which Binance... Uh, operates and has scaled is unbelievable. I mean, there's, I don't think there's any other company that has reached such a scale so fast, wow. like in human history. So when we did the podcast with CZ, Binance was like nine months old and they wow. had quarterly profits of 200 million in that quarter, <laughs> like more oh than God. Deutsche Bank. I think it's a pretty amazing story. Now, I don't know how the story is going to continue, right? Because I think they're very vulnerable to regulatory crackdown. And I think the backlash to crypto is going to increase and they will bear sort of the weight of a lot of that. At some point in this journey that we described, you left Berlin. You abandoned this place of Room 77. <laughs> what are you up to now? Yeah, so in January, uh, my wife and I, we moved to uh, Portugal. So now living in uh, Lisbon or near Lisbon. 
And uh, yeah, it's beautiful place. Actually, there's quite a lot of uh, <laughs> Berlin sort of refugees from uh, <laughs> from Berlin <laughs> here. Um, I mean, my wife had wanted to live somewhere warmer and more Mediterranean for like a long time, and you know, then we decided to come here. And uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a yeah, it's a nice place. The timing is great though, because it does seem like it's now emerging on the at least the european stage as a hub so it it is emerging as a hub in the sense of like you have a lot of crypto people moving here you know in like some other places like of course one we are incorporated in in switzerland Zug, and i think there there is like an understanding of crypto and the sort of appreciation of its potential and like a support of it and you even in Zug, we can pay our corporate taxes in in bitcoin or ether it's pretty amazing. Mm, I don't think Portugal is like that. I think in Portugal, it's something where like, I, I don't think there's an understanding of crypto. I think it's to some extent, it seems a little bit of an accident that they have this very crypto friendly taxation rules. And, you know, it's just a nice mm-hmm. place to live. And so like there are a bunch of things that came together for people to come here. But I do think this is going to be one of the big themes in the next decade is going to be this kind of clash and conflict between nation states and crypto. And I think Mm. it's the whole moving to a different place, you know, with your company or personally, I think that's going to be a key, you know, key lever that, you know, crypto also has to be able to maintain some of the you know flexibility and ability to create beyond the you know confines of regulation you know if you look at technology then i would say how the internet has developed we have built like very powerful tools of surveillance and control and if you look at china today you know, if their social credit score and some of the things they're doing there, they're really developing like tools to basically completely subjugate a billion people, right? And, and that's very menacing and very concerning. And I think crypto is the only kind of response that I can think of. But of course, that's going to be enormously threatening for like the nation state. So I, I think we're going to have some, you know, there's going to be a lot of conflicts. Some wild times in the future. <laughs> well, Brian, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sort of sharing your story through also like in the past, very wild times. Um, and I want to say, obviously, good luck. And I'm so excited that we get to work together going forward as kind of validator partners. It's always good to catch up with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge pleasure for us, of course, to work with you and ZK Validator. And I think the whole idea of having like, you know, Validator who's also like an advocate for privacy tech and has more of a more of a kind of philosophy mm-hmm. and, and value-based approach to it is, is super cool. So I'm really excited that we can like support that and work together with you on that. And thanks so much for having me. It's been a, like a big pleasure. Thanks again, Brian. I want to say thank you to Andre, the podcast producer, Henrik, the podcast editor, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. 